On this week's episode of the High Impact Man podcast, we're, we've got a repeat guest. We've got Drew Inman, a.k.a. Gandalf in the gloom of F3, joining us to talk about how Ancestry.com can rock your world and change your whole perception of it. And he's also going to share with us a little bit about his time serving uh, with the, the Army Reserves uh, over in Kuwait. So sit back and enjoy this episode with Gandalf. Welcome to the High Impact Man podcast. High Impact men from across the nation sharing their stories of inspiration, encouragement, and hope. Gosh, seek transformational relationships. Now, what you're hearing from the culture is not right. Pick up the six, you know what I mean? But you never know who your six sometimes is. Stop being less. To help others become the virtuous leaders they are called to be and that our nation desperately needs. Yeah, that sexy voice you heard in the intro, you're going to hear a lot more of it on this episode, yeah. but because that's none other, none other than Drew Inman, F3 Gandalf, and he is our guest tonight. Now, we've had Gandalf on before, it was quite a while ago, uh, but he's a, he's a JAG officer, he's a federal prosecutor, he's a JAG officer in the military, and he was deployed for a year, and we wanted to bring him on to kind of tell about that experience, but there's something else that he's going to bring to us that uh, only... Recently, after we agreed to do this episode, only recently has he shared with us that he can bring to us finally. And, you know, we're going to we're going to hear something that's just going to knock your socks off. But my name is Nevin Gorky. My F3 name is DFib. I'm joined, as always, by Troy Klinger, otherwise known as Dial Up and Dial Up. The Phillies are in the bottom of the fourth in game three of the National League Championship Series. It's zero to zero. We can't even watch it because we're committed to the podcast. I know. And by the time this airs, maybe what? They'll have won the World Series, possibly, right? I don't know how the dates are going to work out. Yeah, they could. Uh, I haven't figured possibly. that out and looked at the schedule. But, yep, they are in the middle of the fifth at this point, and it's 0-0. Zero, zero. Still 0-0. Zero, zero. Ranger Suarez is still pitching well. Yeah, yeah. Games are up. Uh, you know, the Phils are up at this point 2 nothing. They hit a lot of home runs those games first two games. Yeah, and, uh, records, yeah, they are. So Citizens Bank Park is a party. It is a, it's a rock well, and place to be. It is if you're a Phillies fan. Just a regular old regular, regular season game there is a... Right, it's a good time. We had a yeah. we had a blast there this summer. A game we went to set out in the outfield. Now in the in the playoffs, and the, the fans never even sit down. No, it's yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. Yeah, crazy, crazy. But anyway, uh, as I said, we have our guest here today, <clears throat> Drew Emin. His name is is uh, known as Gandalf. He is was a member of our packs until just recently. He moved to Roanoke, Virginia, and we hope and expect that he's going to be posting down there with the Roanoke boys. Not only that. But he's committed to do GTE 44 down in Cape Fear with dial-up. Yeah. They're both going to go under the log. At the, you know, I don't know if we're under the same log or not, but anyway, be under. I would, you know, if I were you, I'd try to get under Gandalf's log because he's taller than you. And yeah, if he's, if, yeah, if we're under the same log, it's going to be like a foot off my shoulder. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we shall unless see. Unless we, uh, you know, hopefully, I would think guys are smart enough when they're under the log. I, I don't know. It makes sense to me that you stagger your height, right? So that... I don't know how they do. You have a nice straight line from the front to the rear, so that everybody gets the yeah. I'm not sure equal, somewhat equal burden out. of carrying the log. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. I'll figure it out when I get there. Yeah, I'll be. If they don't, the if they way. don't, yeah. Anybody that's uh, listening to this, well, this won't air until we're done. I don't think, right? I Maybe it'll be the week before. There. I don't know. This anyway, uh, air in two Mondays. Two Mondays. So yeah, so it'll be like the week before we go. Yeah. So if anybody's listening to this, they'll know, hey, maybe I should stand in front or behind of Gandalf if they... There you go. He's pretty tall. They want a lot of weight from yeah. the log. The wizard is tall. Hey, wizard, how how tall are you? 
Uh, just under six five. Just under six five. Just say six five. It's more impressive. Uh, it's like six four and a half. I See, always felt like I'm cheating. So listen, this is this is who he is. Okay, he's very very precise. I wouldn't necessarily say obsessive compulsive, but he's very very particular. Very precise. Six four and seven eighteenths or sixteenths. Yeah. How seven, many 16. pages long are your notes for this episode? I think we hit fifteen pages. Deep fifteen in. pages of notes to come on the episode. <laughs> How's the how's the GT? Uh, first it's though, not, it's not notes. That's that's the funny thing. This is uh, full sentences, paragraph structure. Right. Oh, geez. Single, single space. I, I mean, we're probably not going to hit everything there, but this is <laughs> this is how my mind works. I know, I know. No wasteful Oxford commas, right? Ooh. This is littered with Oxford commas. Correct. In the English language, thank you. Yeah, that's that's an inside joke. Anyway, um, I always try to stir the pot where I can. He put on Facebook something about an Oxford comma. I said, "Yeah, I don't think we need it. Nah. It's a waste." How's the How's the G- I really have no idea. Hold on, how's the GTE training going? Uh, it's not going uh, dial up, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I moved down here, started this job less than three weeks ago. We haven't moved into the house that we just closed on today, by the way. Literally, maybe two hours ago, we closed on our home down here. So there hasn't been a lot. I, I haven't even posted with the F3 groups down here, shame unfortunately. So it's going to be rough. Oh, yeah, shame on me. It's going to be rough, though. Yeah, you'll get through it. Hopefully the cadre aren't listening to this episode. <laughs> and they're gonna, you're going to have a target on your back, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go after him, Kaj. He'll he'll do he fine. Can it. He'll do fine. He's a, he did some kind of Norwegian ruck when he was deployed. Eighteen point six miles with like ten pounds in his pack or something like that. He's like the reigning plank off champion for F three Susquehanna right. Valley. So like, champion. seriously, like how how much more studly than that can it get? Yeah, yeah that's right, Mister Planker. Yeah, too kind. Too kind. Yeah. So, um, you know, I got to tell you, this 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 guy, he uh, he. Uh, Shared a story with us at Cafeteria one time that just blew my mind, and uh, and he's got a lot to say about it. I don't, I don't even know where to begin and how to introduce it. So I'll just let Gandalf roll with it. Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, gentlemen, let me set the stage, and I may have to reiterate a few things that I said at the start of my podcast appearance last time. But I was born in 1988. And my father was a lieutenant commander in the Navy. But unfortunately, he passed away when I was young. I don't think I was even two years old. Uh, But I do have at least one really vivid memory of him. Uh, And my brother is almost four years older than me. He has a different dad. So we're half-brothers. Um... But thankfully, after my dad passed away, uh, my mom met my stepdad, who was the father figure for me growing up. But all the same, I would see pictures of my legal dad, this lieutenant commander in the Navy, and I felt a kinship to it. You know, he was also tall, mm-hmm. brown hair. Good looking. Muscular, though. <laughs> <laughs> the comparison's Muscular, so that's in there. <laughs> What's that? The comparisons end there. Tall with brown uh, hair. <laughs> I felt like nature had kind of cheated me, though, because he was muscular, and I've always just been really skinny. Uh, but anyway, that's the stage. 
dad passed away when I was young. Uh, even though my brother and I had different dads, though, we always were very close. I mean, we fought like brothers typically do, but we had a closeness. And in fact, people said growing up that we looked like twins. Mm. And I know this is a podcast. People out there in podcast land can't see photos. But I actually, if there's a share screen function, I actually save some photos to uh, illustrate along the way. I don't think you guys have ever met Ted, my brother. No, no. no. So how do you, uh, well, I, I, I'm not going to mess up the rhythm of this and try to share screen and all that. But uh, so I'm going to jump ahead. One more stage to set here. Sometime in 2017, I got it in my head that I wanted to do Ancestry.com. I wanted to send in that DNA kit. I was really intrigued by the thought of, you know, how enriching it might be to know a little bit more about my genetic heritage, family. Mm-hmm. And like most uh, white people, I'd venture to say in the United States, I grew up knowing that it was basically a mutt. We had Italian heritage. German, Irish, English, across the board. But I remember mentioning to my mom, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this Ancestry.com thing. I'm in my late 20s at this point. Like I said, it's 2017. And I distinctly remember the uncomfortable, restrained discomfort that I saw on my mom's face when I said that. And she waffled a little bit like uh well you know isn't that aren't you worried about any privacy invasion they have your (laughs) dna (laughs) i had no problem with that um so it's still 2017 when the results come back and yeah lo and behold i am irish german italian english but i'm almost 50 percent scandinavian mostly swedish but also Norwegian. And I have no clue where that came from. When I I had no clue, I was a Swede. So my maternal grandma had no no insight to offer on that. (laughs) I talked to my mom. No, that was probably your father. Mm -hmm. And I go to my brother, who, as I said, is a half brother. Mm -hmm. He has a different father. I say, we've got to figure this out. I'm half Scandinavian. If you do ancestry, we can track down. Is this through mom, our shared mom, or is this my dad? He was intrigued, but less urgent about it. Um, But I decided I'd just keep pestering him. And uh, eventually, I prevail upon him. He orders his DNA kit. He sends it in. So those are the two stages to set. It's now December 2017, my brother's DNA results are outstanding. We're on vacation together. At the time, I was dating my now wife, Denise. Uh, She had been with us, but she had to go back. She was still in med school, so she had to go complete a medical rotation. We're driving to the Wintergreen Resort in Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Mom's driving. I'm in the car. Ted's in the car. Ted's wife is in the car, and my mom announces, I have something to tell you all. And there's just a tone in her voice that Uh (laughs) uh, we're going to stay an extra day at Wintergreen. She goes, you and Ted 
are full brothers. Uh, can I boom? Can yeah? Can I wait a second? Yeah, so did you guys, did you guys like pull over for this discussion, or is this like still you're rolling down the highway at like seventy miles an hour? She's still driving. Okay. <laughs> at no point did the car stop. I actually, and I just yesterday was talking to my brother to corroborate details about this and make sure I remembered everything <laughs> accurately and get his perspective on it. And they said without me prompting actually exactly what I remember, which was I said nothing <laughs> for a little bit after that bomb was dropped. And not because I didn't have questions. I think I literally could not process it. <laughs> I'm just silent. You're like, how? Well, which dad how? Brothers. Uh, my brother musters, who's our father? And I think that kind of snapped me back. Yeah, great question. What <laughs> I'm not making this up. And, and by the way, I, I say this. None of this is meant to dishonor my mom or the difficult decision she made. Right. Well, yeah. anyway, get there. I'm not disparaging my mother when I tell the story. This is and, and you I'm have not her permission to tell the story. Yes, correct. All right. She says number thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say to that? Like what? I actually don't remember how the conversation proceeded from that point, but I it was clarified that Ted and I were donor conceived mm -hmm. from the same biological uh, father, same sperm donor. And what my mom meant by number 13 was, obviously sperm banks don't identify who the donor is. You get dossiers with limited descriptions, health, uh, information, that kind of thing, but they're otherwise identified by a number in the case of the bank that my mom used, sometimes by a color, things of that nature. So mm -hmm. my mom's lucky number, she always thought to be 13. Some, some <laughs> people consider that an unlucky number. For her, it was lucky. Uh -huh. <laughs> We're obviously asking, what, <laughs> who is he? What <laughs> can you say about the Right. And she said, I don't remember a lot, but my two criteria at the time, she wasn't a Christian back then. There were two things that were important to her, and one was height, and the other was intelligence. Mm -hmm. So she was evaluating these dossiers based on who's tall and also appears to be intelligent and successful in that mm -hmm. area. So before that day, and... This is how I've described it. I've told this story many times to close friends. I'm not exaggerating. This isn't hyperbole. The expression, I felt like the rug was pulled out from under me. Mm -hmm. Never really made sense until that moment. It's so hard to convey or describe the feeling of surreality or how surreal it was to find out, you know, my legal dad did pass away when I was young. But there was that bond I felt to photos I saw of him. Yeah. I had a vivid memory of the guy. I associated my identity with him. That was completely ripped away. Yeah. I was so angry. Uh, not going to say that's fair, but that I did feel really angry. I remember just staring out the car window as we're zooming on to Wintergreen Resort in Virginia, looking at the trees 
<laughs> um, imagine it. I mean, imagine it. You think I, you grow up thinking your dad is yeah. a naval officer. You have this picture that you feel anchored to, mm-hmm. no pun intended. You feel that kinship, and then that's ripped, like ripped away. Yeah. And the only thing that you know it's replaced with is some tall Swedish guy who might be smart. <laughs> What, what did your wife and your brother's like wife my, say? My whole car? life's been a lie. I think we were all stunned. Uh, my brother's wife is already kind of uh, a woman of few words. My wife, mercifully, was not in the car at the time. Like I said, oh, right. she had to go back to I medical. Forgot, I forgot. I'm rotation. sorry. Yeah. No, you're good. I mean, jumping ahead, though, I did. I mean, there's more to come. To the, the story doesn't end. The oh, conversation okay. of you telling her then had to be really good. <laughs> like, boy, do I got a story for you, Denise. Well, I'll <laughs> tell you. I, you'll hear the rest of this as it progresses. But I, we were long distance at the time. I was living in Iowa. I was a federal prosecutor in Cedar Rapids then. And we would talk on the phone. And, of course, as every bit of information came out, I would tell her on the phone. And poor Denise who's very loving, very supportive, but she just, what can you say to that? Yeah. Oh, I right. hate when my genetic identity is ripped away. <laughs> <laughs> That's my yeah, yeah, but it's like, a, it's like a mystery to solve, though. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the intensity of those feelings did uh, alleviate a little bit. It did calm down some, but there was just a general confusion that pervaded for a long time. I mean, I, I don't want to be flip when I say PTSD because it wasn't PTSD, mm-hmm. but it was reminiscent of it in that for weeks or months after, I would remember this fact about myself. Wait, who, who am I? I'm, I'm donor conceived. I'm not, my father isn't actually my father. And it would have that reverberating confusion again. Anyway, uh, Pause again here. Going back to my mom, the, what I found out was that my father and my brother's father had both had vasectomies for differing reasons that aren't really relevant. But mom uh, had to weigh the options of how do you start me? And that was what was um, you know recommended during that time. And I'll say something else. We- after Ted was born and she wanted to have another child, she prevailed upon the sperm bank to use the same donor. Yeah. Um, and uh, which was, I think he had, they had reached the limit with using this particular donor. These <laughs> uh, banks uh, have rules and limitations, which are good. I don't think it was actually well regulated at the time and it's still not well regulated. But this bank ha- uh, had its own rules that it adhered to. But mom prevailed upon them. And said, I'd really, there's something important I feel that they are full brothers. And I'm really grateful that she did that. Mm-hmm. So, man, you guys are really just giving me all the rope to keep going. Yeah, I guess. I keep going <laughs> well, I'm thinking, like, is there like a record board out there for like the, the sperm donors? It's like, oh, number 13's in the lead. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a scorecard of the most popular guy. Call him back. We're running out of ammo. <laughs> Uh, sorry he's popular in, in his mind in his mind there may have been a scorecard before. and like do they get updated on it like dude you're up to 27 the local legend <laughs> like, 
it's, it's, it's like a Strava segment picture. <laughs> Look, cool legend. <laughs> okay, we're sorry. Well, let's get back to uh, December 2017. Okay. I, after the fateful car ride, I'm at Wintergreen, and of course, just needing some kind of support or something. Therapy. I mean, it, it was pretty traumatic. Um, I called my buddy Wes still distraught and I don't remember the full conversation but Wes said something profound that stuck with me which was look it doesn't matter who your earthly father is who you associate and fills that role you have a heavenly father who's unchanging who was there with your naval officer legal father your stepdad and your genetic father like you have an unchanging father your identity in Christ hasn't changed and his words meant a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, good friend, Christian brother. Well said. Yeah. Uh, Wes, thankful for that conversation. But uh, as the emotion settled, I did realize I was at a crossroad of, <laughs> do I pursue this? You know, on the one hand, do I want to find out who this guy is and risk huge disappointment if mm-hmm. it was an anonymous donation and there's just no means to track this down? Uh you know, or worse, I find him and I regret finding out right. who he is. And option two is just lay the whole thing to rest and make peace with not knowing. And I've never been good with question marks. I've never been good with, especially something as profound as who is your father. So I lasted all the way till maybe a couple weeks. So this is January 2018. I talked to my mom. I say, can you tell me? The name of the sperm bank got the name she had been living in uh the bay area of california at the time that's where our extended family is that's where the bank was located i'm back in iowa i called the bank i spoke to a lady i'll call alice explained my situation and it was extremely progressive bank for the time uh because they didn't permit as fate would have it anonymous donations they're like yeah we required our donors to leave uh, their names, and the donors could leave a message if they were open to contact or not. So Alice tells me, again, I think I'm almost 30 years old. She's like, oh, yeah, uh, your dad was one of our first donors, and he's very eager to be contacted by all his donor children. <laughs> okay. Um, so he and, li- uh, he was literally day, 13. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, would you like to meet your sister? <laughs> I mean, that was uh, a, just another bomb I wasn't expecting in that moment. But yes, yes, I'd love to meet my sister. Um, so according to Alice, they would have to send me some paperwork in the mail that would have to be notarized and all this stuff before they could release the donor's information. Of course, they've got to verify who I am, mm-hmm. not give this guy's identity away to anybody um, and I think there was some similar process for getting my sister's contact info. That sounded like it would take a while. I asked Alice, well, hey, the dossiers don't actually give identifying information. They're generic descriptions. Can you send those to me now? So I looked back in preparation for this podcast, and I had follow-up email exchanges with Alice. And... January 9th, in the evening, like 7.30 my time, Alice had sent 
the donor's dossiers to me. Okay. I spent the whole night researching <laughs> using what bits of info I could find in the dossier, mm-hmm. time frame to find this guy. I wasn't going to wait to notarize any documents I got in the mail. And I found something um, called the Donor Sibling Registry, which is a nonprofit and a website that operates to help donor-conceived children find their donor parents, find other siblings, just connect people who have that genetic connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find a name, and I'm pretty darn sure it's my donor. I find this on the Donor Sibling Registry. It's well past midnight on a work night, mind you. I have to get, but I'm not abandoning this, obviously, and go, well, why don't I go to bed and pick this up later? So I, I find this name that I think could be the guy, and it's a very unique name. I still remember the feeling that night as I pop open a tab for Google, type in my donor's name. I'll just call him John. Like I said, he had a unique name, so that's not it, but I'll use that alias. I type in his full name into Google. My heart is pounding. Just, this could be my dad. What am I going to, what's going to come up? Some, you know, those directories, those online white pages. Florida man. Uh, Who knows? Who knows? I enter, uh, hit enter, hit search, and wham, a Wikipedia article pops up on the left side. And I think Google had just transitioned to immediately showing images associated Uh as well. You didn't have to go to the image search. (laughs) And I'm staring at, as far as I'm concerned, my brother, aged 25 years or so. Uh Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. I said my heart was pounding before I hit enter. But seeing this guy, it was just flooring. Flooring. Uh, I I whispered to myself, That's it. That's my biological father. There was absolutely no doubt in my mind, just based on his appearance. No words. No words. Um, I told you I got my donor's dossiers around 7.30 that night. I also saw, like I said, I was pulling old emails in anticipation of this podcast. I emailed my family around 3.30 a.m. that morning. That was when the search was over. And I found the guy, and I just sent this email to my family, uh, letting them know. So I'll give you the crib notes. I, I, I actually, I'll jump ahead and say I have a relationship with John now. We talk every once in a while. Very nice guy, uh, very gentle spirit and kind. Uh, donated a lot, <laughs> which <laughs> I think that aspiration, you've got to be a little eccentric, so I don't feel bad about using that description <laughs> was it uh, but wait, I'm not gonna, was he paying his way through college or like <laughs> like <laughs> no this is it was post-college when okay. he started to donate All right. it wasn't the world needs more of me <laughs> man that's what he's doing the world needs more of me <laughs> significant source of income uh, as i understand <laughs> but, so here's the, here's the crib notes from my research that night goodness knows when i actually went to bed John was a biologist, and his father, my biological grandfather, was a Nobel Prize-winning chemist. Discovered 
several, principally or co-discovered several elements on the periodic table and hundreds of isotopes of those elements, uh, developed the actinides, you know, the actinides concept in chemistry, the one we all know. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Of course. Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> advised, advised U.S. presidents on nuclear policy, several, pre- like through several administrations, advocated for peaceful application of nuclear uh, science, pioneered nuclear medicine, even discovering applications in the diagnosis and treatment of cancer. Uh, assisted with the Manhattan Project. That's amazing. <laughs> although he did not did not want the United States to actually use the bomb in a way that would harm anyone. Yeah. Uh, numerous honorary doctorates uh, and accolades and awards. The man has. I mean, he's a Jeopardy answer, is how I put it. Like he's a. Mm-hmm. He's a response Who's to the guy Jeopardy that came question. up with the actinides thingy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I probably mispronounced that, but whatever. Yeah. It's only memorialized. Nobody, nobody listening forever. will know. Well, well, maybe somebody, but very few. So at that point, after reading his pedigree, I had to take a good look at myself and all my piddling accomplishments next to this guy. It was a little bit humbling. <laughs> but uh, that. That is Act One of the story. Well, does any have a, a an element named after him on the periodic table? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to go there because I didn't want some, you know, overly invested podcast listeners going and googling and trying to figure At it out. Three thirty in the morning. <laughs> oh, too late! I said it. <laughs> it's John Aronium. Spielberg. Spielberg scrubbed us. <laughs> Okay. All right. Instead, uh, we'll talk about sheep. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of an inside joke, I'm about folks. To hang up. Sorry. I'm about to hang up right now. <laughs> oh man. But we're only getting started, right? Uh, because I mentioned hearing that I had a sister. Right. A few days after this, Alice connected me via email with my sister, putative sister, actually. We'll get to that. That's another twist in the story. By the way, in, in preparing for this uh, podcast appearance, guys, I seriously thought it would be a possibility that people are going to email you afterwards <laughs> and say, you know, that Gandalf guy, he's completely full of it, right? You realize that story is complete nonsense. But uh, I, I'm telling you, every part of this is true. I have not embellished to the slightest degree. Well, he's a, he's so, a federal prosecutor. He always tells the truth. I can't hear you. I, I don't know what happened. There, there it's is. back. Hey, I thought we were going to get emails. <clears throat> people saying, "You help me get. You help me connect me to my long lost brother." Could <laughs> <Right. laughs> happen. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Number thirteen. So lo and behold, I, I, I contact my sister Claire, and any names I use, they're either aliases or I've got the person's permission to use their name. Just by the way. But she says there's six of us and gets me in touch. I mean, come on, man. I've already had my mind blown. <laughs> hey, your dad, who you grew up thinking is dead, you actually have your dad alive. And then the mind, mind blown again, you've got a sister. And she says, no, there's six of us out here, all in the Bay Area of California. Um, so... 
I, I, by the way, I'm guessing, I think it was six, something like that. Uh, there were some who were in various degrees of openness to being contacted, but I connected with, I think, about six of them. Started developing friendships, um, and everyone I talked to was extremely friendly, very, you know, it, it, that part was extremely exciting and fun. Like, mm-hmm. hey, this was a pretty traumatic thing to find out, but I've got a family yeah. out of this. I've got literal brothers and sisters uh, to connect to. Now. And it just keeps growing. And, and hey, how, how, like how long had some of them known? Uh, great question. I don't know who the earliest is. Some of them. Well, actually, some of them had grown up knowing they were donor-conceived their whole lives. Okay. Like one of my sisters uh, was raised by a single mom. Another one was raised by uh, two moms. You know, family situations where it was obvious that, uh, you know, the parents felt obligated to tell their kids sure. right off the bat. Yeah. So, and by the way, some of these siblings were already on Ancestry.com. And Ancestry.com, in addition to giving you an analysis of your genetic heritage, it also has almost like a a social media component where it shows you your DNA connections. And it approximates, based on the DNA analysis, what kind of relative they are to you. And you can message them if you want to. So some of these half-siblings had been on my Ancestry page since early 2017 before I had any clue about this, but just because of the way genetic relations are measured and assessed on the site, they were listed as first cousins, Uh, which I'm kind of, I'm kind of grateful for because it would have been a lot more difficult having this revelation uh, through ancestry.com instead of my mom, you know, breaking the news to us as she could. So, I looked, um, yeah, anyway, jumping ahead, six of us, this is back in early 2018, the numbers did not stay low. Uh, Once I discovered some other people were on Ancestry.com, connected with some of these folks, we started to pay more and more attention to new DNA connections that would pop up on Ancestry. And you'd get email notifications. Some of them had 23andMe which had the exact same feature. And so we, you know, Hey, look, there's a new first cousin on ancestry.com. Do you see this person too? Yep. Sure do. Must be another civil. Um, And I had the opportunity to, for a a good handful of my siblings reach out to them, or actually in most cases they reached out to me. They logged on to ancestry once they got their results back saw these first cousins that they had no clue how they were related and sent messages to a bunch of us. So it was a good handful of times that I got a message like that and uh, gently (laughs) broke the news that, hey, here's what's going on. And I'd say it was probably more than 50% already knew they were donor conceived. So they were just trying to find their donor and other siblings. But, I looked back at some of those conversations, which are saved in my messages on Ancestry, uh, again, for this podcast. So Chris is a brother of mine who's a West Point grad, uh, also a captain in the Army. Of course, he's active duty. And he reached out to me on Ancestry.com. 
it, because he didn't recognize any of us first cousins. The funny thing about Chris is he told me later he didn't overtly suspect that he was donor conceived, but just with his family, he felt something was off. And he thinks subconsciously somewhere he suspected that might be the case. Something uh, is amiss. That he was yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everybody else so, in his family is five foot two and <laughs> <laughs> barely got out of high school. Yeah. I'm taller and smarter than all these people. <laughs> I think something's wrong. We're sorry. I look back at my conversation <laughs> with Chris. No, you're good. You're good. And um, we later, we siblings collaboratively developed a system when somebody new cropped up. Because you don't want to be the one to drop that bomb on somebody who doesn't know. That should come from their family. That should come mm-hmm. in a more yeah. private or a setting where it's coming from somebody you trust and love, not some random, you know, <laughs> Drew Inman on Ancestry. Um, but we didn't hadn't developed the system yet when Chris reached out to me. So I'm trying to tactfully explore whether he knows he's donor conceived or how to answer his question. And I, I looked at my part of my message because he quoted it back at me when I reached out to him in anticipation of this podcast. I wanted to get his impression. What I said to him was, I'm in a tricky position because, yes, I know how we're connected, but it's hard to explain how at this point. Call it a unique family tree. <laughs> <laughs> Smiley emoji. And uh, Chris said to me yesterday, man, I'll never forget that. Call it a unique family tree. I <laughs> thought you were about to tell me it was an X-Man or something like that. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, so, you're going to eventually tell us how many siblings you have. Am I, is it too early for that in your story? No, that's it, fine. The number continued to balloon. It's now somewhere between 32 known siblings and 40. I say 32. <laughs> <laughs> We actually have a spreadsheet, uh, Google. Take that, you Mormons. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, so the way we found out about this was we're at Cafeteria. How many guys were there? We had like seven guys at breakfast or something like that. And I don't remember what you were talking about. And you mentioned your like 30-some siblings. I'm like, what? Wait, what? And that's how and the I'm, story came And out. I missed it that day. I wasn't yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. As I said earlier, I knew what I was doing by dropping that little. Yeah, thing. yeah, you, you, I don't know if anybody else at the table caught on. I'm like, wait, what? What? Because <laughs> it was you were a couple sentences past that, and I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. And, and the other guys were like, what? Like, huh? Go ahead. Yeah. So how many? So you're I? up to close to forty, maybe thirty-two for sure. Thirty-two for sure. I'm pretty sure the document we have that's like a spreadsheet with everybody's name, whether they're open to contact, whether they know that their donor conceived, other you know, details, you know, the more active siblings have filled out a fuller profile on the little spreadsheet, but there's 32 on that. And I'm sure it doesn't account for others that we know about. Yeah. So, 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 okay. So I got a question. I don't know really you know the answer to it. So ancestry and me, I don't, I don't know much about it. I've never done DNA testing or anything like that. So it's, so it's connecting you as like first cousins. And I, I would imagine like they're always trying to refine their algorithm and 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 everything right so like is there a way that you can then eventually update it and say nope we're not first cousins we're actually <laughs> like siblings that they, they, like so to help I them read it. Probably listed his first cousin for the same reason that he didn't want to tell them 
I, I don't know. I, I'm just curious because, like, you, you would think they'd like. It, it, I guess is there a way to give feedback to Ancestry.com to say, yeah, you connected us, but like, here's the real relationship, and like, it all just kind of helps, like I said, refine their algorithm that they use. I don't know if there's a way to provide feedback, but I did log back into Ancestry just yesterday and check that out, and it still says first cousins. Yeah, I think twenty three and Me actually says half siblings, and oh, I have uh, wondered if Ancestry doesn't mask it as yeah. first cousins, almost a sort of plausible deniability for those who don't know that their donor conceived yeah. and would rather not find out. Yeah, like so, that. So tell us what your but, si- siblings yeah. are like. Like you know, are they all professionals, and you know, kind careers do they have? Yeah, definitely. So. Chris is a captain in the army. I think he's a company commander. There's another sister. I'll call her M. She's a cognitive scientist doing postdoctoral research right now mm-hmm. and transitioning into a college faculty position. There we have uh, another one of my sisters, Katia, is a professor at Santa Clara University in their engineering department. Gosh. Uh, got a tech entrepreneur brother. I mean, it's pretty diverse. It mm-hmm. runs the gamut. It's it sounds neat. like pretty successful people, though. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I always said you I were a genetic not. experiment. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting study in nature versus nurture. Yeah. Uh, so, speaking of M, I mentioned her at... I'm going to set the stage for this story as well. There's a sperm bank, or there was a sperm bank, called the Repository for Germinal Choice. And that operated in San Diego County, California, from 1980 to 1999. It was founded by this guy named Robert Graham, who I believe was an accomplished inventor, something to that effect. But his design for the sperm bank was that they would accept donations only from highly intelligent or accomplished people. And I believe his initial goal or what he sought was Nobel laureates only. But he wasn't successful in recruiting enough of them to have a, a big enough repository. So he ultimately accepted other standards for meeting his you know, whatever requirements of intelligence, what have you. There's actually uh, a book and a movie, and I think there's now even, I just saw recently, an Amazon Prime series on this sperm bank. The book and the movie I know are called The Genius Factory, and they're pretty critical of it because it's fair to say this is a eugenics project. Yeah, yeah. Literally eugenics. You're going to cut off who can donate. And I think also the recipients of the donations had to meet some sort of IQ standard. Mm -hmm. So that's, and you can imagine that also got a lot of bad press at the time, just because of the nature of the bank. Yeah. So back to M. Her mom, like several other of my siblings' moms, used the repository for germinal choice where John had donated. And at some point, Wait, wait, wait. he donated at two different places? Oh, he donated all over the place. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Go ahead. I think this is a burgeoning field of law that is starting to become regulated. It's 
you know, not my area. I can't say, but there was a time when it was extremely unregulated and you could have men like John donating, uh, essentially without limitation, I suppose, if they were crafty enough or dedicated enough. It's the wild west out there. And he's, he's the casting his seed with like a big broad spreader. <laughs> That's paywell. I was. I love. Just, just don't even. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, so at some point, I think at the request of the sperm bank, M's mom sent them baby photos. I suppose for their records of, hey, here's another healthy birth. <laughs> the fact that M was donor conceived was a family secret. Outside of her parents, nobody knew. Mm-hmm. But as it happened, a news uh, channel ran a story, critical, I imagine, of the Genius Factory. Mm-hmm. And who knows how they got M's baby photos. Oh, dear. But part of the segment of the story, they're showing a picture of M as a baby. And her extended family is watching this news story. Oh, this back in the day on YouTube. <laughs> They're like watching live and say, that's, that's M. <laughs> and that's how her family found out that she was donor conceived and the lid was blown on that story. Now you guys got together, yeah. right? You got your, uh, uh, you have like reunions and stuff. Yeah, we meet when we're able. In fact, I was just in California before starting the job here in Virginia uh, mostly to see my grandma, but had a occasion, few occasions to meet my siblings and get together. And some of them are quite close. We have a group chat where we check in pretty regularly, talk about these things. It definitely was a therapeutic thing for processing it because I'm not alone in finding out late in life yeah. and finding it a pretty traumatic experience as well. <laughs> As siblings would crop up on 23andMe and Ancestry, there were actually some who started to take bets of, all right, what kind of year is 2019 going to be? Are we going to get five more? Are we going to get seven more? Um, So according to the Pew Research Center, about 15% of Americans have used one of these mail-in DNA services. So... I don't know how that really correlates to our numbers right now, but like I told you, there's over 30 of us for wait, sure out what, there. Wait, what percentage did you say? 15. 15. 15 percent of Americans. So I've, if that's a valid... <laughs> I'm doing the math for my head. <laughs> the 85% yeah. that don't know out there is going to be... So let's see, 32 out of 15%. That's going to be like at least 200. At least times it by yeah, five and a half or so, right? Let's take it easy and say donor-conceived children are probably more likely to use these DNA mail-in kits. So let's say 20%. Yeah. Uh, using that number, it would be over 150 of us. Yeah. Out there. Wow. John. Yeah. Woo. Huh. He the man. Raise a glass. <laughs> <laughs> but think about it. There are people out there like me who have no clue that they're donor conceived. Yeah, and, and they I, think they're I can't remember legal father. If you said this in the beginning of the podcast or not, but um, is John still alive? He is. Yeah. Okay. 
Yes. Did they ever come to the reunions? Yes. <laughs> All right. There we, you go. We need to get John. We need to get John to post at F three somewhere. We should get him on the podcast. <laughs> Could you imagine Namorama? <laughs> Proliferative. Uh, yeah, what, yeah. what kind of F three name would they come up with? <laughs> We're just, sorry. I think you know, it would just. I, I think it would just. I want to be able to share this podcast with John. I so, think it would uh, just be the man. Let's go yeah. easy. All right. We're sorry. We'll calm down. All right. But yeah, so that's the story. Uh, there's some other side plots with some of my siblings. I told you that uh, initially I was just told about my one sister from the sperm bank that my mom used. This is crazy. I was talking with her on Facebook Messenger one day. I think about another sister that had cropped up. And I said, yeah, she's on Ancestry, so that's how I knew. And my sister, Claire, says, wait, this person's on Ancestry? And I said, yeah, I'm on Ancestry as well. There's a good number of us that are on Ancestry and 23 in me. She says, I don't see any of you. Oh, <laughs> What's no. What's going on here? Yep, yep. I... I First of all, track down, okay, do you have some sort of setting that you're not able to view your genetic relations? No, I see plenty of first cousins, second cousins, on and on. It's not that. She's just not related to us, according to these sites. So it's a complete reverse situation. You know, for those of us who weren't told since we were children that we're donor conceived, you go your whole life thinking your nuclear family is, you know, it's a normal situation that that bomb is dropped on you later in life. For her, complete opposite. In her 30s, she grows up thinking she's donor conceived her whole life, finds out, no. As it turns out, she talks to her mom. Her mom had was in a relationship at the time that she was trying to get pregnant actively through this donor. And her partner was using protection because she didn't want to be impregnated by her partner. She wanted to be impregnated through this donor. She was right. 13, man. But it didn't work out. All along, she thought that the donor conception had worked, oh, but boy. it was actually her at the time. And that oh. came out. <laughs> it's not Holy cow. Wild, wow. wild stuff. Yeah. How did oh, she get on that's your gotta be radar? Tougher, yeah. How did that happen? Like she was on Ancestry, but but she really wasn't your sister. Oh, she was through a family connection program with the bank. Yeah, because so when was, I reached out to Alex at oh, the I bank, see. that was your first connection, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's wild stuff, brother. Now, this may be an inappropriate question, but um, I was assume that most of the siblings live in the similar area, like the Bay Area. Most of them do because that's where John was, and that's where most of the donations. Did went. any but of them? They were all over the world. Yeah. Did any of them know each other before they found out they were siblings? Since they lived in Ooh, the same area. That's a good question. Not that I know of, but I was talking to one of my brothers recently, and when he found out uh, that he was donor conceived, he's telling this story to one of his friends. And his friend says, wait, John, is his last name 
such and such? And my, my brother goes, yeah, that's, that's him. He goes, oh, he's my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, you're going to get emails from people saying this is all completely made up. But this is one of those truth is stranger than fiction situations. Truth I, is stranger I, than fiction. Do you, do you know anybody else that Stoner can see? I do not. Yeah, that's I, I'm not, not aware of anybody. So some, well, yeah, no, I don't know anybody. All right. Well, did are are we done with that story, brother? I think we got through my notes. All right, sweet. Ooh. All twenty-two pages of it. <laughs> well, thanks for thanks for sharing. Yeah, yeah I know, and that I, was, I, you know, it it was a shock to us at the cafeteria, and it was, I mean, it, it was just. Yeah, you know when you first hear it, it's like whoa, and it's crazy, man. Yeah, and I know we laughed and joked at times through all of it, but you know, seriously though, like it's there's a yeah, there's like some hard situations and hard discussions, and like you said, some just life altering, life changing, yeah, things yeah, but it's, that came, the blessing it came is out that you meet all these new brothers and sisters you didn't, yeah, you're right, and yeah, they, uh, and yeah, once yeah, once you deal with the initial shock, yeah, uh, yeah, like there's like this whole new world of. He must have had one heck of a, a, pro, a profile, and all these people read it and said, "Yeah, yeah. Give, give me 13. I, 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 I know we were jo- joking about the you know the, the record board, right? The local legend status, but like I wonder, like is that like is that normal though for like I don't know these donor sites, you know, Gandalf, like like you know how do you how do we how do we like are there some donors? It's like uh, <laughs> oh, you're the first person to pick him, and yeah. uh, you know he's been here for how many years? Versus you know lots of people I, I, have I, I, that I, many. Bank. Yeah, I, I'm sure the sperm banks have those stats. The yeah. repository for German employees, they wanted to get as many records as, as they could to document the yeah. success and what, what the donor children went on to do. Yeah, And That's obviously, the bank that my mom used kept records too or, or invited the donor children when they were older to leave their contact info for their siblings. So, yeah, those stats have got to be out there. So um, to to just kind of change subject a little bit, um, I, I would like to would like you to tell us what your time was like overseas. And you spent, I think it was nine months over there, right? Yeah, I joined the National Guard. Pretty ignorant of the fact that the National Guard actually does overseas deployments. Mm-hmm. When I joined the Guard, I thought, oh, this will be a neat <laughs> side gig learn military law, be able to serve my state because the National Guard is a state organization. But sure enough, it wasn't long after I joined that I was told, hey, we're gearing up for a deployment in the future. So get ready because our unit is going to uh, Southwest Asia. So yeah, I mobilized, what was it, October of last year, went to Fort Hood, Texas, were trained up and sent to Camp Erfjan, Kuwait. And I was lucky enough to be assigned to the sole military prosecutor spot for our command, which was Task Force Spartan. I was actually a first lieutenant still when we were boots on ground over there, I think sitting in what would be an, a, typically an 04 spot for a mm-hmm. major, which was pretty neat. Although the nature of the command was I was more of a supportive prosecutorial role with another command that has a more uh, enduring presence in the CENTCOM region. That's the region where Camp Eric John was. And they did the most of the courts martial. 
but I had an opportunity still to participate, co-chair uh, court-martial, prosecuted all sorts of felonies, sex assaults, and uh, child exploitation, sort of the rougher cases were the ones that wow. tend to get queued up court-martial yeah that's that's a uh, horrible to know that our you know it yeah. happens but of course it's human nature i guess do, do, do you mind me asking like like in in the nine months that you were deployed like how, like how many cases did you end up actually like trying that time hopefully this is encouraging in the nine months there were not a lot there was less than 50 that were serious enough to truly contemplate using a general or special court martial mm-hmm. as the disposition to punish the crime. So that's not to say there wasn't a lot more misconduct that happened in our area of responsibility. There was, we were covering all of CENTCOM, like I said, and that's thousands of soldiers, lots of different um, units, but most of that is petty sort of military specific crimes and things that can be handled with reprimands, Mm-hmm. Uh, letters of reprimand from the file that yeah. are temporary or, you know, extra duty, those kinds of uh, discipline and good order types of dispositions. Now, when you're, when you're, a, can, when you're, when you're a, um, trying those cases, uh, is it, I can't remember, but I th- seem to remember that when you're serving your active duty in the military, uh, the Constitution doesn't so much apply as the Uniform Code of Military Justice does. Is that is that true? Maybe the not. Uniform Code of Military Justice uh, contains the statutes that define the crimes okay. that we can prosecute. The Constitution still applies to a degree. By the nature of serving in the military, some of your rights are curtailed. Right. Your First Amendment rights are certainly can curtailed. You can't serve as an army officer and simultaneously be disparaging the president or other public officials. But the Constitution generally still applies. When you're in military quarters, your Fourth Amendment rights, those are the Fourth Amendment protects you against unreasonable searches and seizures. That right is extremely limited just because you're in this military environment and there has to be the power of a commander to search your quarters, right. uh, find contraband, things of that nature, keep that, like I said, the good order and discipline going. So that's, uh, yeah, Constitution is UCMJ. It is curtailed a little bit for service members. UCMJ uh, can't supersede the Constitution, but it defines the crimes that service members are subject to. Got it. All right. And now, not only, you didn't just uh, do your lawyer job over there, you got to do some other cool stuff. Tell us about it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we uh, got to do, look, soldiers are like uh, Pavlov's dogs when it comes to uh, finding out you can get a medal or some sort of trinket or uh, (laughs) something that can go up your file for the accomplishment. So as soon as I landed, I heard about this Norwegian foot march that was going on, which is an 18-mile, 18.6-mile ruck, starts at night, goes until, you know, late morning or early morning, I should say, you have to complete it in less than four and a half hours, or at least for my age group and, and carry at least 24 pounds in your ruck. So, and that's a foreign badge that's awarded and authorized for wear on our dress uniform. So of course you, you heard that. 
Uh, me and my buddies all decided to do that. That was pretty neat. Got a little uh, badge for that. Was it an There's overnight also look? The uh, So we were sent out in waves because there were so many soldiers who participated in that. I was lucky enough to start earlier. Uh, some people didn't start till midnight and mm-hmm. probably didn't get back to their housing until 5 a.m. or maybe later. Yeah. And what kind of gear are you wearing, like, in addition to your rucksack? Like, are you in, like, fit, oh, we had, like fatigues, we boots? Had wear, yeah, yeah, the fatigues, we call them our OCP. Okay. Yeah. How hot was it? It was nighttime, so it wasn't bad. Okay. But uh, I wouldn't recommend visiting Kuwait in the summertime. It, it gets pretty rough. By the time we left, I think it was uh, 120 degrees plus at, you know, midday. Mm-hmm. But it's a dry heat. <laughs> it's dry heat, yeah. <laughs> Makes it all the better. All the better. Yeah, all right. All right, what else did you do? Uh, Didn't you do some jumping out of an airplane thing? Aerosol. No, I wish. Yeah. Aerosol. Uh, yeah. So our unit said that they were putting on aerosol at a nearby base, uh, Camp Beering. But every command only had a certain number of slots of those who could participate. So... I trained up, uh, was lucky enough. I think 50 soldiers from my command were competing for 10 slots. Uh, really lucky I, I qualified for that. I think we had to do our um, combat fitness test, and so you were judged based on your scores for that. We had to do uh, an obstacle course, and you can look up online what the air assault obstacle course entails. I think it's the Sabalowski aerosol school in Fort Campbell that they put on the videos of what that entails. Uh, and then had to do a ruck with a much tighter time. I think that was about 45 pounds of gear for 12 miles. So those three events, you had to do well on each of those to uh, be ranked for the 10 slots that our command gave us. But yeah, air assault was basically training for operations of rappelling out of a helicopter. We didn't actually get to do that. And by the way, if the, the judge advocate is jumping out of a helicopter for some sort of air assault, <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <Not belong. laughs> yeah, I would guess. So tell us how you're um, um, almost uh, a year, right? Almost a year with us at F3 before you deployed. Did... did uh, Working out with us at F3 help you with that and get through that? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. There's no way I would have qualified for air assault. And I'm not just saying that. I would not have qualified for air assault if F3 hadn't been keeping me in shape following my, uh, you know, direct commission course, which was basically my boot camp. Um, you guys kept me in shape. The Army got me into shape. F3 kept me in shape is how I put it. Yeah, I remember one of the first beatdowns that you came that I queued. I can't remember. I think it might have been a, f- a Friday. I think I did a, a, oh, my gosh, what do I call those things? Accumulator. An accumulator. I think I did an accumulator. Did we do it with blocks or not? I don't think we did it with blocks, right? And you were like. I don't think. I think you were like, what? We're going to do how many, Merkins? <laughs> <laughs> like, but it turns out you could do it. Yeah, but in my defense, I was assuming every Merkin was perfect form. <laughs> I think that's a dig at me. I'm I think sure. that was a shot at you, brother. <laughs> a dig at you, but I'm telling you, man, we 
come to those beat downs. Okay, we're going to do 100 Merkins. Then you run to the other side of the field and do 90. Yeah. Then you run back and do eight. Nobody's doing these Merkins. <laughs> By the end, it's, it's uh, yeah, vibrating plank, as you guys say. Yeah, but my chest feels still feels really sore afterwards. It does, yes. <laughs> I always tell the story. I, I, when I started at three, I, I thought it was serious, perfect form push-ups. So I remember seeing some of the numbers or hearing some of the numbers, you know, on the little, uh, you know, whiteboard mm -hmm. that people would bring and think, oh, my gosh, I thought I was in shape. I was just gone. You know, I just got done with army boot camp where they trained me up and we weren't doing these kinds of numbers. Right. But uh, so that's I, I, I love F3. I love that you planted the shovel flag. Uh, DFib. It's been such an awesome thing for me. But that's my one criticism is those numbers are sort of uh, there. It's not 100 Merkins when 100 Merkins is on the board. It's just not. I think he's calling us out on form. I think he is. Yeah. Next time, next time I do an accumulator, we're going to be doing. There's definitely some guys that form. Their form is better than others. We're going to do the no cheatums. We have hand release. At yeah, the bottom I like it. And That's, I, I do like hand release at the top. Or no, uh, shoulder taps at the top. Yeah. Nope. I like. I like when we do that. Yeah. Because it does. We'll it, do that. that. We'll kind do of. Those. Kind of eliminates the cheating, but we'll videotape ourselves. So one of my favorite. I, I wanted to tell my favorite. One of my favorite Gandalf stories is he's talking about like the stupid stuff we do. We were. It was when we had moved uh, Wednesday's <clears throat> Thunderdome up to. Napper Clinic, uh -huh. and it was the first time I did the uh, like I did bear crawls up the up, oh, right. <laughs> up the main road in front of the hospital, you know. And so it's it's in the morning, like all these cars are starting to roll in, all the docs and nurses and all the other hospital staff are starting to roll in. And so I'm like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna bear crawl, we're gonna crawl bear, and we're gonna do all this up the sidewalk in front of the hospital. And Candop looks at me, he's like, in front of everybody, <laughs> like people are gonna see us doing this. I was like, yeah. Yep. And by the end, he was like totally in, and he's like yelling and screaming at at uh, at, at G string. I mean, uh, uh, you, uh, not G string. Yeah, you shared this story with the uh, Beach Balls interview. Oh, did I, I really? Oh, I totally forgot. That's All okay. right. Anyway, okay. I'm getting old. I start to repeat myself. He's he's a lawyer. He remembers everything. Oh, he's a genetic experiment. He remembers everything. That's right. <laughs> I, I actually remembered. Uh, I should share about aerosol. It's really tough course, and I wanted. I, I regret that. I'm down here now and I can't cue this beat down. I wanted to replicate some of the experience of aerosol because there is part of the course is zero day where you have to do that obstacle course again, except intermittent between each of the obstacles. You look at the obstacles themselves. Like I said, they're on YouTube. If you want to, you think that's not bad, even if they're done in succession, but they're smoking you in between each obstacle. Mm -hmm. And the really challenging part of it, is the cadre, we're all shouting at you. They're playing that drill sergeant game of trying to break you down, mm -hmm. humble you. This, I'm not joking, every time your left foot hits the ground through the whole obstacle course, I think except when you're like climbing up on the top because they've got this Jacob the Ladder thing where you go 30 feet in the air and have to swing around and climb down. Aside from that, every time your left foot hits the ground, you're shouting aerosol. Yeah. <laughs> so we got the idiots, all of us in our fatigues out there on this course, you know, aerosol, aerosol, you're hearing it echoing throughout the whole course. You may not think that's a big deal. Okay, so what? You've got to repeat aerosol. That cuts down on your ability to catch your breath yeah. so powerfully 
that it's a whole different experience doing the obstacle course. When we did the obstacle course just for quals, it was so much easier just saying air salt after every time your foot goes down. So I wanted to do, and I don't think anybody would appreciate it, so maybe it's, it's best I didn't do it. I wanted to do an air salt beat down where the whole beat down we're following that rule every, and I was going to strictly enforce it every time your left foot hits the ground. I like you it. Shot aerosol. I'm telling you, whole different experience, and it has that mental element too, where you have to stay focused. It's not just the physical side of you're gassing yourself more and uh, hindering your ability to catch your breath. Just mentally, you've got to have that perseverance to keep saying it and not drop off. Yeah, I think huh. you should say F three. That's that's what I was thinking. Me. We're gonna do this yeah, F three. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah. Cool, man. But, yeah. Uh, well, if you ever actually Joe post Air- down there in Roanoke, you can so yeah. That. So any men of F three Roanoke that are listening yeah. to this, Gandalf, you got to reach out to him. Reach out to our podcast. We'll get you in touch with him, and you can track him down. Yeah. Tell him you'll be out in front of his driveway, beeping, or out in front of his house. Get him involved. Honking the horn at five a.m. Yeah. Who knows? You might be his brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're on the East Coast, all right. a little less likely. <laughs> but we all have a look, and I'm telling you, we have some a of look. my brothers and sisters in California pass somebody on the street and think, huh, he kind of looks like us. Got <laughs> <laughs> our nose. He looks tall and smart. Uh, so the army does an aerosol uh, course. Aerosol. I actually did want to finish uh, a story I, I just remembered. It's a tough course. You can be dropped out, and in fact, many people do drop out. The course that they were putting on overseas, I don't think they were being as strict as the course that's run in Fort Campbell. Mm-hmm. But lots of people did drop. And it starts off with an academic portion of after zero day where they smoke the heck out of you. Then you're just running around with your pack full of gear. They give you this list of stuff you have to have in your ruck. You have to meticulously pack it. There are inspections. You're missing one thing. And, well, you should be out. They gave grace a few times. Uh, I think the first time they did an inspection, there was about 24 soldiers. They lined them up after they were called out for not having uh, the entirety of their gear in their ruck. Shoot them out. But anyway. After zero day, there's phase one, which is academic, just studying about different types of rotary wing aircraft for the Army, what they're used for. Um, I'm going to forget things, but phase two, I believe, was sling load operations, which was, for me, the most challenging part of the course. You study how uh, certain you know loads are hooked up to helicopters, how to... Uh, basically ensure it's, it can be safely transported yeah. via sling load. And the capstone for that portion of the course is you actually have these setups, and I think there's four of them. You go one to the next to the next, and you have about two minutes or so, maybe a little more for each load where you have to identify deficiencies and how it's hooked up. Uh-huh. And it's really time-intensive. I think you have to find three deficiencies within these two minutes, so... And we're talking about things like a, a Humvee. Yeah. So you're going around whole vehicle searching for mm-hmm. even meticulous details can constitute uh, deficiencies that if you don't find them, um, you know, you failed. So 
made it past phase two. The final phase is supposed to be the fun phase, which is actual repelling. Now, unfortunately, you don't get to repel out of a helicopter. Uh, I think some of the course offerings, you know, probably Fort Campbell, you actually, the capstone for that is you get to repel out of the helicopter. We didn't have that over in Kuwait, but we did have a uh, tower. I think the one in Camp Bering was about 40 feet, 45 feet high, right. uh, where you simulate repelling out of the helicopter. And made it past sling load operations. You know, I'm just hoping for success, taking this seriously. In the Army, having your air assault wings, if you complete the course, you get these wings, which you can wear on your OCP and your dress uniform, and it gives you a certain degree of credibility. You know, I probably took it more seriously than a lot of other soldiers, but for me it was, hey, I'm not just a lawyer. I've done, you know, I've at least familiarized myself with this kind of operation. As it happens, uh, I actually failed the course. For the rappelling, they teach you how to tie a Swiss seat with the rope that you would use to rappel out of the helicopter. And they're training you on this. I had no problem learning the Swiss seat. They time you. I think you have 90 seconds to tie your Swiss seat. And uh, then you also got a, a brief time tested on also hooking up with the carabiner. Had no problem with that. After that test, they said, okay, it's no more training. We're going to inspect you before every repel, before you go up this tower. If you're, you have any safety deficiencies, you're gone. And I'd had no problems whatsoever tying the Swiss seat. And the end was in sight for the course. This is the final phase. This is the fun phase. Got past the actual test to know I can do the Swiss seat and their strict timing. Sure enough, get up to, I think it was the third to last repel for the course. And after that, you just have to do a 12-mile ruck, which I already knew I could do. Third from last repel, I walk up there, and Cadre immediately looks at my square knot and just shakes his head, doesn't say anything, says, go see Sergeant such and such. Everybody else, after inspection, is moving on to the tower again, and my heart just completely drops. Uh. Oh, my gosh. What, what the heck? I look at my square knot, and sure enough, it's not a square knot. It's a granny knot. And what had happened was when the, the, they said no more training inspections are for to fail anybody who's got these deficiencies, when they said that, a bunch of us said we need to battle buddy each other, inspect each other's knots. I had tied up my seat before the inspection, and my buddy said, ah, I recommend you tighten that up a little bit. So I'm in line to see the cadre, and I'm in line moving forward. I just undo my square knot, uh, retie it a little tighter, I think, but make it a, a granny knot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bummer, it, dude. It sent me home. Attention to detail. And I get that. Yeah. Tell me about it. I get back. I, I talk to the staff judge advocate, colonel, head of our office. Tell him what happened. He's still supportive. Uh, says, hey, I'll, I'll talk. Maybe you can go back. I remember talking to Cadre before I was sent back to Camp Arif, John. He said, listen, the only time we'll be back overseas, we're going to be in Germany. 
I took this course, I think in January. They said, we're going to be in Germany in June, which was still within the time frame of the deployment. You can come back. We'll let you drop, you know, we'll insert you right back into phase three if you can come back. Wow, that's nice. So there was just a little bit of hope, a little bit of hope. And I go to my colonel. He's like, okay, I'll ask. I'll ask chief of staff. We'll, we'll see what can happen. Man, that was immediately kibosh. Yeah. No, yeah. we're not. You're not going to Germany. Back to Germany, which is out of theater. I said we were in CENTCOM, which encompasses the Middle East, parts of Northern Africa. Germany is in UCOM, completely different area. I think you have to go all the way up to the commanding general. It's commanding general of Task Force Spartan, which I said I was part of, to get released from theater. And I was some lowly jag his situation of, oh, I failed out of a course. Can I take it again? That's really not something that a two-star general right. I care about. Yeah. Ah, too bad, brother. Yeah, yeah. sorry, man. Hey, but you learned hey, something, story's right? Not over. Story's not over. Oh, oh, oh. oh. And I, I, my buddy told me there would be an air assault course before I got to Camp Arab John, and we both committed together we were going to try and do it. I might you know, not surprise you me with my meticulous notes and writing things down. I always have a list of things I'm praying for, be it for family, friends, their salvation, you know, growing in holiness, being the best soldier I can be. On that list, pretty early in the deployment was come back home with my air assault wings. Uh-huh. And when I was told, no, don't, you're not going to Germany It was often, hey, don't worry, you know, domestically or in Pennsylvania, this traveling group might come back to Fort Indiantown Gap in Pennsylvania. And and maybe we can look to see if the unit has funds to send you then. But my prayer on that list was always, I want to come home with my air assault wings from this deployment. And I didn't lose hope to be sent to Germany. I didn't pester about it, but as the date approached, the June date approached, I did reach out to people and ask, hey, what's the situation here? Like, what's what's kiboshing this? Why can't I go? And I was told, we literally don't have funds allocated for this. We do not have funds to send you. It's not going to happen. And I remember as I was tracking down this information, it was literally within weeks of the course starting, and I had been in contact with the officer in charge, the OIC cadre for the course. And at one point I told him, all right, I'm not coming. It's, it's, I'm not going to be able to come. So, Hey, thanks for letting me know about this opportunity. (laughs) I was back at my prayer list one night, not long after that, crossing out things that had, you know, either been accomplished or what have you. And I was going to cross it out, but I just couldn't, I couldn't cross out come home with your air assault wings. I knew it was completely unrealistic. And I'd even told the OIC, I'm not coming. I won't be there at Germany. Don't, you know, reserve a spot for me. And I can't remember exactly how it happened, but my colonel, the SJA, said he would pitch my situation to uh, the commanding general. And he said, don't hold your breath. Mm-hmm. And the next day after that, I got a call from him. He said, Captain Inman, got some good news. 
you're authorized to go to Germany. It was no cost to my unit because the unit in Germany where it was being put on had paid for those slots and they had extras. So the training itself was no cost to the unit. The only catch was you have to pay for your own travel. I'll pay to go to Germany. Sure. I would pay to go to Germany anyway. Yeah, right. uh, and can't interfere with your work. So I structured it so that there was no interference with my work. There were no hearings or important me- you know, meetings that couldn't be moved in that time frame. I bought my own ticket. The commanding general signed my release from theater. I remember literally purchasing a ticket. Ah, I can't remember. I think it was Frankfurt was where I landed, but it was on the other side of Germany. It was the cheapest ticket I could find that was a straight shot mm-hmm. from Kuwait. Blue Kuwait Airlines, by the way, which is a fine airline. There was like 10 people on this plane, and they served multiple meals. It, it was great. Better than uh, United. I'm just, just throwing that out there. Kuwait <laughs> Airlines. Is, yeah. You ever have a chance to fly Kuwait? But uh, I landed in Germany just knowing they have a rail system, not knowing how it works. I had to find where the rail system was connected to the airport and, uh, you know, find my connections to make my way across Germany to, oh gosh, and I can't remember the name of the base where they were putting on the course, but sure enough, sort of landed blind, uh, made it there through the rail system in Germany. And when I got to the town adjacent to the army base, I ran into some soldiers there who were not dressed in their uniform. They were actually at a bar uh, sitting around a table drinking. They were off duty, you know, relaxing. And I said, hey, do you guys know how to get to, gosh, I, I'm, I can't believe I can't remember the name of the base. Uh, but they were like, oh, yeah, that, that's where we are. Hey, can you drive this guy to on base? And of course, I had my, uh, you know, identification card as an officer. That's how I got there to finish the air assault course. They let me reinsert into phase three. Now, when I got to the exact same point where I dropped out before, the final three repels or whatever it is, which are repels that you can fail on, this cadre who was there during the last course offering inspected me, and I think he was messing with me because he looked at my Swiss seat as I got up for inspection, and he shook his head heaved a heavy sigh. And I remember thinking, Oh my gosh, if I fail out this time, I'm not going home. I'm not going home. There's going to be some tall Swedish guy in the German countryside. Mysteriously, <laughs> Captain Inman will disappear from the face of the earth forevermore. Um, but no, I think he was messing with me. Cause then he like did a fuller inspection and said, ah, go ahead. Um, they, they were known to mess with people. But yeah, I did complete the course. And you got completed your Completed my final pass the inspections, did the ruck, final inspection of all the items that you have to pack in your ruck. Got my wings. And that awesome. was a really awesome. It was very meaningful to me. I think for a lot of soldiers, mm-hmm. air assault wings, you know, that's not a ranger tab. That's not special forces. That's, you know really might not mean much to the really gung-ho soldiers. But for me, that was such a huge thing. And uh, it was really poetic that I never struck out. I just couldn't strike from my prayer list yeah. come home with those wings. So perseverance, never give up. 
and uh, power of prayer, man. That's right. All right. Cool. Well, that's cool, brother. Now, I, I'd um, be remiss if I didn't ask you briefly, if you want to, as a federal prosecutor, to kind of opine on the uh, indictments of the Trump uh, indictments uh, that are going on. Uh, honestly, to be honest with you, I don't really follow them that much anymore because uh, it just... I don't, I don't follow the news as much as well, I do. Some war kind of broke out. That yeah, some war broke out or something. I'm already talking about it. I don't know. What do you think, man? Well, I should say this. First, I'm not opining as a federal prosecutor. I'm not here on behalf of the DOJ. and right. None of my opinions can be imputed to the G- DOJ. Although they're the ones who indicted him uh, for a couple of these indictments. So <laughs> they obviously believe in them. Um, I know I pitched this as an idea, potential discussion point, but... I really uh, didn't get a chance to dig into it as much as I would have liked, but I will talk briefly about the indictment for um, the conspiracy to defraud the United States, which was his efforts to overturn the election. You know, I would also be amiss not to think that there's probably people listening who think the election was stolen by President Biden. We don't really have time to delve into that, but that is truly nonsense. And I think it would be extremely enlightening, extremely enlightening for a lot of people who do believe the election was stolen to read the indictment that charges Trump for his efforts to subvert the election. It is a very lengthy but very detailed and well-crafted indictment that spells out all of his actions in his criminal conspiracy. And what you really glean from this is there are some just an indictment, of course, is just an allegation of a crime, right? right. That is a grand jury agreed. There's probable cause, yeah. probable cause, which is a somewhat low bar to believe that crimes have been committed enough for that criminal prosecution to go forward for a trial date to be set and for the government to prepare its case and actual, to actually convict the defendant at trial. So the allegations in the indictment are just that. They're allegations founded upon probable cause. However, what you'll find reading that indictment is many of the facts are just matters of public record that are absolutely irrefutable. And what you get from reading that indictment is Trump, I don't know if he truly convinced himself that the election had been stolen, But what is incredibly obvious is from the beginning, he was going to say this election was stolen. He had that plan from the get-go. His most trusted advisors, attorneys who were close to him, his personal attorneys, would say things like, that is not true in regards to certain allegations of 50,000 dead people Mm -hmm. voted in this state or that state. The state officials who uh, oversaw, you know, the elections in their states, some of whom publicly supported Trump, publicly were disappointed by the outcome of Joseph Biden being elected, would tell the president, look, we've looked into this allegation. There weren't dead people. There weren't 50,000 dead people. There were five. Or they looked at the people heavily invested in seeing Trump elected, actively investigated these claims, disclaimed them, despite having every predilection to substantiate them if that was the case. The DOJ investigated his allegations. 
he privately said about some of the allegations of fraud, uh, particularly vis-a-vis um, what was that program, uh, you know, the computer program that oh, uh, certain Dominion voting systems was, you know, changing votes. Trump privately told people, oh, this is bonkers, crazy, but then went and spun around and pushed the narrative publicly, tweeting or what have you. The distinct impression I come away with from my limited research into it, reading that indictment, is he had a plan to throw a fit no matter what. I don't think it was in good faith. I think he knew he lost. And there's reasons to believe he knew he lost. But he was willing to sow so much chaos. I don't think it's hyperbole to say risking a civil war, because if you really believed the party, the opposing party stole the election from you, why wouldn't you storm the Capitol? I don't blame the people who stormed it. Well, I blame some of them. They, a lot of people knew better and were acting in bad faith. But if you truly believe that your election, your vote was nullified and stolen, why wouldn't that cause you to do something extremely dramatic? And Trump, for the sake of his ego, for the sake of wanting to win, even though he knew he lost, was willing to risk that level of social chaos. It's despicable. And I, for one, hope he's convicted and goes to jail. So, so, so was, was it a crime? You know, as far as the nature of the statute, I have never charged or had a case with that particular statute, let alone uh, alleging defrauding the United States through attempts to subvert the election results. So it's, you know, it's really untested yeah. by the courts as far as the statutory elements and whether the facts as alleged meet those elements. I can't opine. It's, I'm certainly not expert enough to say. But as a matter of morality and ethics, I think what happened was despicable. And right in our backyard in Williamsport, uh, Judge Matthew Brand oversaw one of the election challenges in the courts, and there were numerous, all of which were tossed. Matthew Brand, I believe, Republican, appointed by a Republican administration, heard Giuliani's arguments before him and his opinion dismissing the case says with as broad allegations as have been put forward that the election was stolen, millions of people's votes, or they were disenfranchised of their votes. You'd think the proponents of the theory would come forward with evidence, compelling evidence. We have nothing. Nothing was brought forward before the courts. And that's pretty consistent with these lawsuits challenging the election across the country. They unanimously failed, failed epically, didn't, I mean, not even a close call, nothing. You have intelligent, accomplished attorneys, and there's no doubt Giuliani, who was once the United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, which is highly regarded in the Department of Justice, known to be one of the more elite uh, federal districts. Rudolph Giuliani was the United States attorney for the Southern District of New York at one time. He knows how to put together a case. He knows how to oversee investigations. If there was evidence, who better to uncover it than him or attorneys of his, the caliber he once had? But we see nothing. We've seen nothing. So why in the world would he do it, Giuliani? 
What's that? Why would Giuliani bring the case then? That's crazy. I've got to believe that it's loyalty and hoping to remain in power. It benefited him for Trump to continue in power as well. And perhaps there's a case of self-delusion here where they think, and this is a quote, um, or rough quote that you'll see in the indictment, Trump would say things to the effect of, or his uh, advisors or his ilk would say things to the effect of, well, instigated in the courts will come up with the evidence later, which is just more evidence, in my opinion, of, of bad faith. Of, yeah. Look, let's just disrupt this. Let's keep me in power to whatever end. We'll sort it out later. Right. And in fact, there's an email uh, from one of the people who is working on Trump's uh, campaign and working on this issue. And the email said something to the effect of, uh, how can we keep doing this when there's no evidence? We're just putting out, and I think he, uh, pardon my French, we're just putting out bullshit that's beamed from the mothership, i.e. it's coming down from the top. Keep spreading this lie. So without getting any uh, into any detail about the legal theories themselves or the statute and its elements, I think what Trump did as far as trying to subvert the election was condemnable. There's no basis to believe the election was stolen. And uh, I hope he's brought to justice, frankly. I'm, I'm very conservative-leaning. I did not vote for Joe Biden. I didn't vote for Trump either. I abstained because I just couldn't stomach voting for either of them. And I suspect that's going to happen yet again uh, for 2020. <laughs> I would love to just vote. I would love to find a candidate that has the integrity, the character that I can feel good about voting. But I just... Dark helmet. Up to this point, yeah. Dark I helmet. didn't vote <laughs> Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, that's our movement, yeah, Dark Helmet. We've, we've been we're trying still, to get dark we're still trying to get Dark Helmet a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sorry to make light of that. But that's, anyway. thank you for yeah. that opinion. Uh, that's interesting. Not what I predicted, to be honest. No, no. Yeah. Uh, Very interesting. Thanks, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for your sharing, so though. You can get uh, emails about how my first story is all a bunch of <laughs> BS. <laughs> you get angry emails about uh, bashing yeah. Hey, Who's this idiot conservative guy that doesn't One back man's Trump? opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's going to be fascinating hey, to see. of views, and I'm obviously not speaking on behalf of the Department of Justice or the right. High Impact Man podcast. But thanks for having me on to share. Yeah, well, I don't we, know what dial what dial up wants to do, but I am going to refrain from commenting on all that because I don't know enough. Yeah. I, all I know is I concur in the uh, with your. Uh, plea for better candidates yes this is the best we I've, can do. S- I've said that many times it's like really this is the best we can do yeah. like yeah oh well <sighs> hey god is in control brother that's right amen amen uh, so so to wrap things up i don't remember i don't think so uh when you were on the podcast before it was so long ago that i don't think i was asking in the first question back then so i'll ask you now mr gandalf um, if you were to, if you were to pick somebody that you would say is your inspiration, your hero, you look up to that kind of thing, could be somebody from the distant past or present or whatever, who would you pick? Oh man, <laughs> he didn't have this on his sheets of paper. No, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem is the names that are coming to mind are cliche, you know, that's okay. But, uh, well, what comes to mind is the Apostle Paul, mm. who 
was doggedly faithful in his mission to spread the gospel of Christ. Mm-hmm. Also comes to mind is uh, George Washington, mm-hmm. who despite uh, some may retcon and try to spin as a deist, was in fact a uh, incredibly committed Christian with a life of faithfulness that is worth emulating. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that it's, it's vogue now to criticize certain historical figures because of the cultural milieu, the fact that he owned slaves. But frankly, I agree with the, the comedian Bill Maher of, hey, you're not morally better. You were just born later. And who knows, but for the grace of God, would we have done the same? Mm-hmm. And we do know that George Washington um, emancipated his slaves, treated some as though they were family. Uh, I don't think that detracts from the core of his character and who he was in leading the Continental Army, mm-hmm. who he was in leading the nation. I think he's he's worth respecting. He's he's the figure I'd offer up. And but for the grace of God, uh, you know, perhaps things that we take as cultural norms now will be seen as morally appalling, and the shoe could easily be on the other foot. Um, with anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, that's good. I there there are two people that come to my mind too. I've mentioned George Washington before, um, so uh, yeah, two two really good good guys to choose. Yep. No, no doubt about that. Uh, and the Apostle Paul is just a fascinating figure, and I'm I'm surprised more people don't. Talk I think about we've him. had I think we've had a couple people mention yeah, Apostle Paul. Yeah, because you know question. he was a, he was a passionate zealot guy who yeah. was actually uh, you know persecuting, killing Christians, and all of a sudden he's an encounter with Jesus. And he's just as passionate, just as zealous of uh, proclaiming the gospel and pointing people to Christ. And uh, and he's the guy who was commissioned by by Jesus to go and take the gospel, 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 gospel into the Roman Empire, right? He took it into Asia Minor and uh, Greece and into Rome and all that. And uh, um, it was the beginning of what would become uh, the Western world, you know, the modern Western mm-hmm. world as... Uh, as times went on and Christ, the church's influence uh, in a positive way, developing hospitals and universities, et cetera. Anyway, Apostle Paul is a great choice. Yeah. So is George Washington. Appreciate it, brother. All right. So you got anything, got anything else for the good of the order? We're going to have to end it here in a minute. Hey, I did want to say one thing. I'm, now that I'm down here in Virginia, I really don't have a chance to say goodbye to the PACs up there for Susquehanna Valley. So I just want to say, that group means more to me uh, than you might know. It's been so awesome getting to know everybody and working out, growing stronger together, running together, building endurance, praying together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys have prayed for me for personal things before, and uh, the group has meant a lot. And I just want to say goodbye to everybody. Hopefully, a good handful get a chance to listen to this podcast. Yeah, I think everybody will. And I, you yeah. know, honestly, I, I wanted to have a, a going away dinner for you, but you were supposed to come back that one weekend. I was going to try to arrange it, and then you didn't. And uh, anyway, I feel badly that we didn't do that. Um, but you are all good. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you get maybe you get back in this area at some point, and we can yeah. have a celebratory dinner then. Absolutely. We get to see you in two and a half weeks. So three weeks. Yeah, that's right. Two and a half weeks. Two. Yeah. Yeah. Roughly. Fear. Yeah. We'll be together. I'm not ready. Not ready. Get ready, right. my brother. Get ready. Time to cram. Time to cram. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, man. Um, God bless you. God bless Denise. I'm glad you got in your new house. Yeah. I hope everything goes go smoothly as you unpack and get everything in there and your new job and all that. And, you know, find those guys from Roanoke. Start start posting down there. Will do. Hey, DFib, I did expect one more question from you, which was, uh, you know, what do you have to say to the men in America? Oh, the only reason right I now? didn't ask that is because I thought I asked you that last time. So go ahead, brother. What you, your... you did. Uh, but I, I wanted to say in line with, you know, my first story, which is it doesn't matter what your genetic heritage is. It doesn't matter who your father is, where you come from, what kind of family situation you find yourself in God can use you. You are still created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Don't let that hinder you or stop you or be a source of shame. Uh, for me, it's a Romans eight twenty eight situation. It was a traumatic revelation, but uh, it's, it's been an ultimate good meeting my brothers and sisters. And yeah. I, I love them. Develop friendships with many of them. So it is turned into a positive. What started out as something that made me really angry to hear and really disillusioned and confused and feeling unmoored in my identity is worth to good for me, certainly. Yeah. Good word, brother. Yeah, thanks, man. Way to wrap it up. Just another conversation with another high impact man. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, one one other thing I wanted to show out for anybody that's listening and, uh, you know, uh, really like this story and they want to hear the episode from when Gandalf was on the first time it's out there. It's actually episode 15, uh, from our, our original group, uh, our original, I guess, season one, season one, uh, but June, uh, June, something of last year, but, uh, episode 15. Yeah. Check out Gandalf. If you want to hear more of his, uh, his first story of what he shared, mm-hmm. you'll find it, uh, find it really interesting and some good, good, really good content there. Yeah. Amen, man. All right, brother. God bless you. Hey, God bless. See you in a few weeks, brother. See you, man. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I would like to thank our guests for joining us and sharing their story of becoming a high-impact man. More information and resources can be found at highimpactman.com. If you like this podcast, please consider following us on our social media pages or email us at him at highimpactman.com. That is H-I-M at highimpactman.com. The High Impact Man podcast has a new episode every week, and you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcast platforms. Have a great week, everyone.